Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. What does Easter mean to me? Easter, Easter is a time of confusion. It's a time of great, great sorrow when Christ was crucified on the cross for us, for the, for the sins that we did. I mean, that, it's a horrible, horrible way to die. But God demonstrated his amazing love for us. And that three days later, he rose from the dead. What an amazing thing. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yet he's given us and the world, especially at the moment with the way the coronavirus is going, he's given everyone a hope in the future and demonstrating the love that he has for all of us. This is, this is a time in the Christian calendar that I think is the most important in our church. Over and above Christmas. Christmas is a wonderful time. Christ was born. But the true meaning, the meaning that, that we really, really believe in is the fact that Christ was, Christ died and he rose again. He rose again to save us all and show us that great love, that amazing love that Christ has for all of us. God bless you all. For us, we have four stages of choice that gave us life. Now, the reason why I, I say that is because Jesus had four stages leading up to and after the cross that we're going to be journeying this morning uh, in, in a little bit of a different way. So I'm hoping that you uh, enjoy uh, this service as, as we go into depth of it. So to kick off this morning, I want to go through those four stages. Those four stages are the table, the court, the cross, and the grave. Four stages of choice that Jesus intentionally took so that we could have freedom and eternal life. Four stages that were pivotal in the history of mankind. Four stages that were pivotal in God showing what true love is all about. But before any of this happened, Jesus does something unthinkable. He prepares us. He prepares us. Last Sunday, we explored how Jesus prepared his disciples. But he didn't stop at just preparing their hearts or their heads or their direction. He laid everything out to prepare the way. In Luke 22, starting in verse 7, it says this, Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so that we can all eat together. Then goes on and, and both of them asked, where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, so this is Jesus replying, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Jerusalem would have been filled with pilgrims coming to celebrate the festives. 
Every house would have been filled with additional guests. So finding a room for Jesus and the twelve would not have been an easy task. It is possible that the man carrying the jug of water, which is normally, back in those days, was normally a woman's task, would have been an essence. Then they, uh, they were the only Jewish men who culturally would carry water in this way since they were celebrants. They had a community in Jerusalem that had a gate called the Essence Gate. They also had a different calendar that uh, typically was not the same as the Jewish one, which meant that they would still have guest rooms available. Back to Luke 22, it says this, At the house he enters, say to the owner, this is Jesus talking again, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can uh, eat, where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. The Passover meal commemorates Israel's escape from Egypt. When the blood of the lamb painted on the door frames had saved the firstborn sons from death. Isn't it amazing that the event foreshadowed that what Jesus was about to do on the cross? They went off to the city and they found everything just as Jesus said. And they prepared the Passover meal for there. Jesus prepares us and everything that he says is exactly the same as the way it turns out. In Luke 22, the author accounts this. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my sufferings begin. For I tell you now, that I will not eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks for it. Then he broke it. into pieces and gave it to his disciples saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in mark chapter 14 it reads take it as this is my body jesus asked his disciples to eat the broken bread to remember him he wanted them to remember his sacrifice, the basis of forgiveness of sins, and also his friendship. In verse 20, it goes on and it says, After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. 
The Old Testament, in the Old Testament times, God agreed to forgive people's sins if they would bring animals to the priests to sacrifice. When the sacrificial system was inaugurated, the covenant between God and his people was sealed with the blood of animals. We can find this in Exodus 24. But animal blood did not in itself remove sin. Only God can forgive sin. And the animal sacrifice had to be repeated day after day and year after year. Jesus instituted a new covenant or an agreement with God and his people. Under this new covenant, Jesus would die in place of all sinners. In Revelations 1.5, it reads this in the, in the new, uh, in the NIV, it says, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. In this new covenant, God freely gives us forgiveness, life, salvation, and every heavenly spiritual blessing possible. Unlike the blood of animals, Jesus' blood would remove all sin of all who put their faith in him. Jesus' sacrifice would never have to be repeated again. Jesus served his disciples the bread and the cup, or the blood and the wine, or blood or wine, and his body, which means he is serving us his death and resurrection. This is now our feast and our constant supply of life, which is explained in John six fifty one. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I offer you, offer so the world may live, is my flesh. At this time, at this same table where Jesus promised life, he also pointed out something very pivotal. His grace compassion and resilience. In Luke twenty two twenty one to 24, it says this, but here at this table sitting amongst us as a friend is a man who will betray me. Jesus knew it was going to be Judas, but instead of pointing that out, he says, for it has been determined that the son of man must die. It was already planned. He goes on to say, but what sorrow awaits the man who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which one of them would ever do such a thing. They began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them right at this very table that Jesus sat at for the last time. This took place at the Lord's Passover table. Their discussions of who was the worst among them, led them to argue over who was the greatest. The most important event in human history was about to take place and the disciples were still arguing about their prestige in the kingdom. So journeying from the first choice to the second is journeying from the table to the court. 
After the fulfillment of the betrayal, Jesus was arrested, arrested, with no resistance. His disciples became confused and attempted to stop what Jesus had already said needed to be done. In Luke 22, it says this, For it is determined that the Son of Man must die. After Peter, Jesus' closest friend, denied being associated with Jesus three times, Jesus was brought before the council of religious leaders. After they convicted him because of the truth, Jesus said, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the right place of power at God's right hand. The religious leaders took him to Pilate for judgment. The second choice that Jesus made was in the court. In Luke 23, starting at verse 1, we find this. It says this, Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. They said, This man has been leading our people astray by telling him not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. In verse 3, it goes on and says, So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Pilate then turns to the leading priests and to the crowd and says, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent. But he is causing riots by his teachings wherever he goes. All of Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. After a short trip to see King Herod in the attempt to get him to make the order, the high priest brought Jesus back to Pilate. And we pick it back up in verse 23, 13. It says this, Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders among, uh, along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for him to have the death penalty. So I'll have him flogged, and then I will release him. Then, the mighty, then there was a mighty roar from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was, a, was in prison for taking part in robbery and murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he was demanded, why? For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I'll have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their, jo- their voices prevailed. 
So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded, as they had requested, and he released Barabbas, the man in prison for robbery and murder. But he turned turned Jesus over to them as they wished. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of execution reserved for only the worst of criminals. While you and I were still sinning, a payment plan was being devised. Enter Jesus. He lived 33 years of perfection, and then, you see, lamb blood could only last until the next time you were found unclean. Our sin was costly, and a dead sheep wasn't worth a dead human, let alone a dead God. It was going to take a better kind of animal, the most precious of all animals, a spotless, intelligent, party-going, people-healing kind of animal, one who is fully human and fully God. What could make us whole again? It was going to take expensive blood. One dark day, 2,000 years ago, at a final meal with his closest friends, during a time of great political and social unrest, in a quiet room, in a random house, and as a last reminder that nothing is free, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Soon thereafter, the blood, body, and life of an innocent man, an innocent God, was tortured to death, beaten, stretched, tried by fire, and left for dead. For you, for me. Now what? What are we supposed to do about all of that? We killed him. Then we placed the corpse in a cave and walked away. The same way people leave a sporting event or get up from a good meal, onto the next insignificant part of our day, onto the next controversial act of society that will make for a jarring but brief media headline. But then, Something that has never happened before happens. 
Yeah, Jesus dies, and for 71 hours, it looks just like another end-of-the-world scare to add to the 4,199 other known religions. Until he's back. He's here. He's alive. You see, me dead on an altar pays for nothing. Him dead on an altar paid for everything because death could not defeat him. My dead body declares that death wins. My dead body just makes me even with sin at best. His dead body brought back to life lavishes an indescribable love upon us, a love that terrifies our darkness, makes us whole and sets us completely free. We deserve to be sacrificed on an altar like a helpless sheep, yet instead he went. He died. And after three days passed, God sealed our hope of eternity forever when Jesus rose from the dead. When my sin said, I've ruined you, his blood says, I'm here to redeem you. When sin swallowed and controlled me, his blood shouted, let me set you free. My sin said, it's hopeless. His blood shouts, you have purpose. My sin said, anxiety, and his blood roared, peace. My sin said, lost forever. His blood shouted, let me, let me guide you back home. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again, born again, take us from enemies of God to made new and right with God again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is a story worth telling over and over, a life worth remembering and an invitation worth giving over and over, a hope worth clinging to day by day for centuries at a time. 4,200 known religions in the world, millions of gods. Why pick this one? Because it's the only one that picks you. And it's the only one that picked me. No matter what, no matter what price was demanded for our soul. Spat on. Mocked. Completely demoralized. And then he was nailed to a cross. In Matthew 27, 35, the author accounts this. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled his clothing by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above his head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. The people passed by shouting abuse, shaking their hands in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said that you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked him. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't even save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? 
Let him come down from the cross right now and then we will believe him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Listen, Jesus said three pivotal things on the cross. He knew the outcome of what he was going to do. He knew the result and he knew the pain that he was going to do even before he set foot on the cross as he was preparing us, not himself. The three pivotal things in this next choice of his being the choice of the cross. First one was this. Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Jesus was suffering the most horrible, painful death ever devised by sinful man. And yet he looked at the people responsible for his suffering and prayed for their forgiveness. The second thing we find in two parts of the Bible, in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, it says exactly the same thing. Jesus called out, in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthian, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So many people misunderstand this, what he was saying. They think that he was saying that God has abandoned him. No, 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 no. Jesus was not questioning God. He was quoting the first line of Psalm 22. The whole psalm is a prophecy experiencing the deep agony of the Messiah's death. A deep expression of the anguish he felt when he took on the sins of the world, which caused him to be separated from his father. That is what he was expressing. This is what Jesus dreaded as he prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane to take the cup from him. In Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. But then he says something very pivotal. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. The physical agony that is suffered was horrible. But to him, Jesus that is, the period of spiritual separation from God was even worse. Jesus suffered this double death so that we would never have to experience eternal separation from God. In Luke 23, 49, was the last thing that he said. He then shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Jesus was now dead. But what happened next? Change the course of history of, the, of humankind. From the cross to his next choice, the grave. There was a member of the Jewish council named Joseph from a village of Ram near Jerusalem. A good-hearted, honourable man that was eager for the appearing of God's kingdom realm. He had strongly disagreed with the decision of the council to crucify Jesus. He came before Pilate and asked permission to take the body of Jesus and give him a proper burial. And Pilate 
granted his request. So Joseph took the body from the cross and wrapped it in winding sheets of linen and placed him in a new tomb that was unused and that was chiseled out of solid rock. Which brings us to our last choice that Jesus made for our freedom. The grave. A stone was rolled in front of the entrance. As his body was taken away, the woman of Galilee followed and saw the tomb where the body was placed. Then they went home to prepare spices and ointments to anoint his body. By the time that they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they were unable to get back to Jesus' body. The next day, on the Sabbath, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we just remembered what the deceiver, they're referring to Jesus here, once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone that he was raised from the dead. If this happens, we'll be worse off than where we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards and secure it as best you can. That's our four choices that Jesus made. From the table, to the court, to the cross, to the grave. But it's not finished there. On Sunday we'll be journeying after his resurrection. And as it has been said several times today and leading up to today, that there would not be a resurrection if there wasn't a death is what we are journeying today. So let me pray as we finish off this service. Lord, I thank you for what you have done, what you chose to do, and the choices that you made, not only to free us, but to show us your love, your friendship, and how important we are to you. Lord, you provided a way for us to experience true life. Lord, we thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In about 20 minutes or so, we're going to be doing our Zoom uh, interactive communion. Please make sure that you join us for the details. You can find them on the Facebook page. But if you're unable to make it, I'll see you on Sunday as we journey the rest of what Jesus did in creating this new, this true, and this life to abundance that he has always promised from the start. Blessings as you go forward for today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. www.cofcpenrith.org.